it's interesting that you bring that up as being one of the most, one of the scariest parts that would deter somebody because it was exactly that for me. Like when I was, I mean, people are so surprised when I tell them like in high school, I was extremely shy. Plan to fail. So you won't. Production will solve all your problems. Some will, some won't. Stop whining, so what? Just hit your weekly production goal. The weekend starts now. One, two. Had you not um, been on your fast thing, what would your coffee order have been? Ooh. Probably just black, something actually, well, probably just with a little bit of cream, honestly. Like I usually just do a normal coffee with, uh, with a little bit of cream. So no sugar usually. What's your, what's your go-to? I love Breve lattes. I don't know if you know what this is, but instead of using milk, they use half and half. Okay. It's very rich. Yeah. Um, but also... I like the taste of coffee, so if there's too much milk or richness, then it's like, I didn't get coffee, I got a bunch of steamed milk with something else in it, Um, so I usually haven't put like an extra shot or something in there. Yeah, that's one, I I guess that, so there is, every once in a while, I'll go to like Starbucks or something and I'll get the, um, uh, what, like a, (laughs) it's the triple tall caramel macchiato, so the triple is the three, uh, because they normally come with two shots of espresso, but a triple, you get an extra shot of espresso in there, so it's pretty, that's pretty good, and I, because I like the strong flavor of the espresso with uh, some of the sweetness, so. That's, uh, that's black coffee with a shot in it, and that's what I got you. Oh, this is, oh, this has a shot in it? I've never heard, they called it a shot in the dark. (laughs) <laughs> Usually I've heard like red eye or something no, like that. No, it's pretty so. good. Yeah. All right. So, um, oh, before we start, let's start with prayer. Okay. You want me to lead that or you got that? Go ahead. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit. Amen. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this day. And we pray that your spirit might be upon us, that you might always open our minds and our hearts to your presence, to your will, to your love your desire to lead us and guide us as your disciples through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, welcome to the One and Done Lifestyle Podcast. Um, like I said, I wanted to introduce you to kind of what what the name's about and why we, why we chose this, but um, I'm going to start out with this joke that my dad always tells clergy. And you know how dad jokes are, and you like hear your own dad, and you're just like shaking your head, like, "Oh, don't say that." But it goes something like, "Man, you have so much free time because you only work one day a week, right?" That's right. Yeah. Well, that's where the the one and done um, lifestyle came from. A lot of people don't know this, but my dad and I um, sell final expense life insurance, but we only do it about one day a week. Um, that's a little misleading, just like it is. Um, in in your line of work um there's a lot more work that goes on outside of sunday Mm -hmm. um and same with us but with with our business um we go out and we try to kick ass one day and so that we have the freedom to kind of do other things in our life and so that's what this whole podcast is about is about 
the lifestyle that we get to enjoy working one day a week. And it's about kick, kicking ass. That's right. And taking names. <laughs> Good. So why do I have a, a Catholic priest on? Well, he's got a one and done lifestyle, right? You know, that's right. But uh, uh, I think we'll talk about it a little bit later. Like you, you chose one thing to focus on. Mm-hmm. And that's the the Catholic faith, and right. like you're all in. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty crazy because yeah, we we obviously I think most people's perceptions of priests is that you know you is that you are basically you do you do the mass thing on the weekends and then the rest of the week is kind of preparing for that but that's actually one of the things that I love about the priesthood is that it's uh every day is like an adventure as far as like what I'm going to be doing and what wh- who I'm going to be encountering and I rarely do I know exactly everything that's going to go on throughout the day and rarely is the day ever anywhere close to the same as the previous day so that's while it's uh I guess that's kind of the behind the scenes aspect of priesthood that I didn't necessarily know because there's certain elements that I always imagined that I would enjoy doing but uh never really thought about all of the wide varieties of places and ways and people and scenarios and phone calls and stuff that I that I would encounter so that's actually one of the really cool things about it is all of the stuff that I get to be a part of something like this, for example, the freedom to be able to, to be, you know, not to be sitting in a cubicle, uh, for not, for eight hours a day or whatever, uh, and to have freedom to do some of those other types of things is, is, is pretty cool as well. So, well, I appreciate you doing this with me. Um, it's, it's a long time coming. I've been, uh, it, it's actually a good thing that we're doing this now because I would keep coming up with questions and then it would turn into one of those three, four hour conversations. So hopefully we don't go forever. Um, explain the Hayes community a little bit. Um, I think that this community is very unique in having 17,000 residents, maybe 20,000 when college is in session. Um, and then four very good sized Catholic parishes. Yeah. Also with, um, periphery of small parishes in mm-hmm. the small communities. And you're going, hold on 20,000 people and four pretty large Catholic parishes. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. If you, if you were to look at one of, this is probably the most consecrated, consecrated, concentrated, uh, areas of Catholicism actually in the Salina diocese, which the Salina diocese is uh, 30, 31 counties large, uh, all the way from Manhattan and Washington, Kansas on the Eastern side to the Colorado border on the Western side, more or less following the interstate all the way down. But, uh, it's, um, so it's a large land area diocese, but, but, uh, there's not a whole lot of central population in the diocese. Uh, and Hayes is unique in that way that it's, it's not a huge population, but yet the percentage of Catholicism out here is, is unreal in terms of Ellis County itself, uh, is a very high percentage. And even if not currently Catholic or practicing Catholic, like the, the community out here has like just about everybody can have, unless they're complete transplants has some rootedness in the Catholic faith, whether they're currently in it or practicing it. Uh, so that's kind of a unique reality. And that, that was something that kind of was a different experience for me as a priest. Cause I've served in Salina. I've served some in Beloit, uh, which is another cent- 
centered population, but it's not quite it's not quite the same as Ellis County. And then I've served in Manhattan, and all of those are very different than even even Hayes is. So, yeah, and, and like I said, I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm actually a little nervous. I I couldn't sleep last night, and I mean we're friends. We, we hang out on mm-hmm. a regular basis, uh, whether it's Bible study, CrossFit, um, at my parents' house at the pool. You know, just. Yeah. I mean, and for me to be nervous, I was like, why am I nervous? This is crazy. But you're popular. I mean, <laughs> uh, I don't really mean to pump your ego that much. But, I mean, there's very few people that my my two-year-old knows and my 89-year-old grandma knows and everything in between. Yeah. And I could probably show up in Salina working and be like, hey, you know Father Jay? And they're like, oh, yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. and so... Um, like I said, I hope I'm not pumping your ego too much. But. <laughs> that's pretty funny. I don't usually think about that, but that's, uh, that is true. Like a lot of people do know priests just because there's, I mean, we have a far reaching, uh, impact and that's for the good and for the, for the bad. But anyway, but hopefully mostly for the good. <laughs> so how did we meet? Was it first at the gym? <sighs> I th- think so. In fact, um, I think the first time I walked in, I think you were behind the counter, if I remember right, um, and that was in the old the old place. And I had I hadn't even moved physically moved to Hayes because uh, I don't think we had any encounter, at least not any significant like actual uh, meeting before that. Um, I'm almost positive, but maybe maybe it wasn't. But I was thinking that it was that was you behind the counter because I had come in and said something about. Hey, I'm uh, the new new priest in town, and i uh, i had talked to I had talked to Maddie a little bit about the about the CrossFit setup out here and and what it looked like and stuff. And so, uh, I had kind of gotten a little bit of a heads up of of some of that. And I don't know if she had shared anything in terms of that uh, that there was a priest who, who does CrossFit that was coming out to Hayes. But so I still I still remember walking in the first time, and I remember that old counter before you guys even. Uh, knock that out in the old building. Um, but yeah, so I still have that visual, uh, anyway, that, the reason why I think it, it's in my head and I don't know if this is a <laughs> going longer in a particular area or topic is because, uh, is that's actually one of the things in, I guess, getting into the CrossFit world a little bit is that's one of the things that is intimidating to a lot of people. Like I still have a very visual image of the first time I walked into the, to the box, to the gym in Manhattan, actually it was seven, eight, five, which was a basement gym. And I still remember being extremely intimidated as you walk down these stairs and there's this music blasting and barbells clanging and, and, uh, just walking in thinking like, I'm not, you know, this is not me or this isn't for me. But, uh, once you get past that initial, I mean, as as soon as you meet the humanity of the people and everybody's just so welcoming and awesome, uh, that it's just, it's just an unreal world, I guess. But so, so uh, just kind of sharing that I had that visual of Manhattan. I have that visual of walking into Hayes because it's still the same thing. It's like a little bit of nervousness and anxiety about walking into a new place and what it's going to be like. So. We, yeah. um, I, I wanted to bring it up because of, I don't want to talk, I don't want this to turn into a CrossFit mm-hmm. podcast, you know, uh, right. because we could sit here and oh, just yeah. talk CrossFit for yeah. an hour or more. But, um, how were you first attracted to and introduced to CrossFit and why do you keep coming? 
Uh, so I first heard about it from a great friend of mine in Beloit who actually opened up his own box. Uh, he had been doing it even prior to moving to Beloit. He was doing it out in Colby uh, just on his own. He had set up his own gym and stuff. Uh, and I heard him talking about it, and I heard him setting it up in Beloit. And he was always constantly sharing with me. And I there were there were a couple of things that specifically intimidated me or, or kind of deterred me from it. And the one was... One was expense. I always, I always thought I heard the first, you know, that was because at that time I was paying like thirty dollars a month or something to go to a to go to a basic gym, and so hearing eighty, ninety, hundred, whatever, that it just kind of was like, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, and then the second thing was just the idea of working out with people, and so that was a deterrent as well. Like I'm kind of self conscious about my own limitations, about what I can and can't do, like workout wise, and I. And so the idea of having to like work out in a class with people was just a, a deterrent for me. It was not something I was ever interested in. But now looking at it, I mean, honestly, that's like one of the the greatest draws or one of the most enjoyable things about it is actually the community and working out with people and just the relationships and then the added element of a little bit of competition, but you're com- competing within your own abilities, but yet you're still doing the same thing and there's just a camaraderie there that that really drew me to it. So that's how I first was exposed to it. So this friend from Beloit actually was still trying to learn about how to best run his box. So he was visiting places all over the place and he went to like three or three different boxes in Manhattan. And he said, Hey, I met this one guy who owns the box at uh, seven, eight, five. And, uh, you should really check that out. And he's like, I'll pay your first three months or something like that. And I'm like, all right, if he's gonna if he's gonna cover me for it, and it it took like a week of being in there, and I was just like I was I was hooked immediately, and uh, haven't yeah haven't looked back since then. I guess so. Uh, it's just something that I truly enjoy. Like I said, the community, the competitiveness, the 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 variety. Um, yeah, there's just a, a lot of things that specifically I guess speak to the way that I enjoy people and working out, basically. So. Do you feel there's any crossover as far as that intimidation factor of walking into the box? Do you think a CrossFitter can walk into a church confident because the communities are similar or vice versa? Somebody who's very good at church and does CYO and is very comfortable in church wouldn't have as much um, hesitation walking into a CrossFit box or is there any crossover there? I would love to do an entire podcast on the direct correlations of faith and CrossFit and how inter interlinked just the ideas behind so many of the aspects of it. Like there's so many, so many ways that I think, uh, faith, faith, life, living out your faith and CrossFit inter interlink. And so obviously I'm not going to go into all those, but, uh, but in terms of that, that idea of walking in into a space and feeling intimidated, intimidated by the people that are there thinking, thinking that these are the, you know, these are the, the studs, the people that I can never be, um, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to work out with these people. I'm not worthy to pray, you know, in this setting with these people. There's I think there's a ton of correlation there. And I think, yeah, a lot of people who are perhaps walking in for the first time to a church or whatever, perhaps have that, that mentality. Um, but I think in the same way is if you spend any time 
in a in a church, hopefully. And I know there's horror stories. There's always horror stories. I'm sure people have horror stories of of their CrossFit experiences walking into a space or whatever. But in general, the people are are you know uh, salt of the earth, uh, inviting, welcoming, um, encouraging. And they're, they're on a path of bettering themselves basically. And, and once you realize that we're all on that same path, yeah, some of us may be just a hair ahead, but the reality is, is we all have setbacks. And so this is both faith and CrossFit. Like I'm, I mean, I had a setback with my knee just a month and a half, two months ago. Well, now it's, I guess it's more like five months ago, but anyway, uh, and so, yeah, I was doing well and had set back and, and it's exactly like faith. Like you'll be doing well, something will hit you in your life. It could be a death. It could be an illness. It could be, uh, you know, just despair about something and it can knock you back and knock you down for a little bit. But the support of the people, the invitation of the people, so many, there's just so many correlations, I think between, yeah, those, those two elements of faith and, and living it out, uh, in, in, a CrossFit community and in a church community. So this is, I, I wish I had a segue. This is going to be kind of like we fell off a cliff here, but uh, <laughs> no problem. let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to like your childhood and growing up, um, you, from a, a small town, uh, I actually have family buried in your small town. So we have that, um, That's right. unique connection. Um, my uncle, my dad's dad used to run a service station in Abilene. So, um, kind of a, a weird world's colliding years and years later, but, Uh um, did you always want to be a priest? Did you see that in the cars? Just tell your whole story, um, from childhood. Okay. Uh, so let's see. So, um, yeah, grew up in Abilene, born and raised. My parents still live in the same house that I grew up in, uh, born into a family. I was the fourth, the fourth kid of six. Uh, I was, <laughs> I've always, I've always, fun, I'm always happy to share that I was 13 pounds and four ounces. Um, and so actually I have a indentation, I have a forcep indentation on my forehead, uh, which some people say they don't even notice, but, um, and uh, so I joke about that a lot with the kids and stuff, but yeah, so I should have been a C- C-section baby, but was not. <laughs> and so, uh, but anyway, so your mom's a badass. Yeah. Basically, sure. uh, as she describes it, it was, it was extremely traumatic and she, I think it was like a life and death type of a birth basically. Like she, I think she, she talks about the fact that she was praying to God, you know, in the midst of this, like it was, it was, uh, not good. I don't think it was that big of a deal personally, but <laughs> it didn't bother, it so it didn't well. bother me that much. So, but, uh, but anyway, so yeah, born, uh, and so now I've got, I've got four brothers and a sister. So five boys and a girl in the family, um, grew up cradle Catholic. Both my parents come from Catholic families, uh, agriculturally connected. They both were on farms growing up. So we had exposure to that growing up, but lived just out in the country, but not, not on a farm. What did they do for a living? My dad worked for the uh, farm services agency. So for the federal government doing, uh, our agricultural programs for farmers and stuff like that and loans and all those kind of things. Um, which was kind of cool because 
we had we had unique access to the farmers in Dickinson County, which uh, meant we had unique access to farm ponds and and hunting and that kind of stuff because he had those those farmer connections. So that was always fun. We did a lot of hunting and fishing growing up locally around there. Uh, and then my mom was actually a social worker first in the hospital, and then she was a social worker in the in the uh, schools in Dickinson County. So. Um, yeah. And so grew up in that environment, Catholic, I say cradle Catholic, cause there's that sort of this traditional stereotypical image of cradle Catholic in the sense that faith is important. There would never be an idea of missing church. Um, but growing up for many cradle Catholics, it's, it's also sort of a jumping through the hoops of the sacramental life and just doing it because it's expected of you. And I, I would describe that of myself in many ways. Yes, we prayed as a family and I had, I have such a blessed memory of faith and praying, you know, in the car and before bed and all of those things that really set the foundation. But in terms of my own personal relationship with Christ, it wasn't something that was a big deal to me. And so yeah, that's always the big question with, and and I know that's another topic in some ways. Is like, how do you get from head to heart in terms of in terms of the faith life? So for me, it was very much head. Um, it was just an expectation. It was placed upon me. We all, we all did it because that was just the life that we were exposed to. Um, and then I went off to college basically that way uh, with four brothers. There was always this, this in the background, sort of the, the idea or the thought of priesthood in the family, um, just with five boys in the family. And uh, growing up, it was not something that – I don't know why there was such an aversion to it personally, but it just was not in my cards. Um, I had certain ideas about what, what was a successful life, and I think it was influenced by the world. What? Okay. Um, but when you say that, though – Put us on a timeline. Um, what year was it, or how old were you when you first even heard? Um, have you thought about being a priest? Because that's that was my first um, exposure to it. Yeah, it wasn't me saying I want to do that. What he does, it was somebody else saying, "Hey, have you thought about doing that?" Yeah, and um, I don't know if that that was your experience or not. There may have been somebody who has asked who asked me at some point, "Have you thought about doing that?" Um, I don't remember that question if it was asked of me. Um, I think for me, and I think this is a, a common thing today that the, the, the Catholic church is very different than it was in the fifties or whatever, in the sense that you had, you know, two, two priests, three priests, you had young, younger priests more more common. Um, and so my exposure to priesthood for the first 18 years of my life, they were holy priests, great priests. I don't want to sound like I'm bad mouthing them, but I never, I never encountered a priest under the age of like 60. Um, at least that's my image of it. Uh, and so it wasn't something that related to me. It wasn't something that I encountered that, that yeah, related to what I was interested in, in any way. Um, Besides, I mean, obviously just being in a Catholic school and having that little bit of exposure. So we would experience it in the classroom and stuff like that. But, and I still remember the vocation director coming over when I was in fifth grade, actually. And we, I still remember drawing vocations, pictures and drawing, you know, posters of priests and religious and that kind of thing. But it never went from 
just this thing that was part of my faith life to something that I actually could consider. And I, so I don't think I even wrestled with the question. It just wasn't a question. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't a reality, a possibility for whatever, for whatever reason, there was not that real exposure nor, um, yeah, interest or desire or question, which is really weird because I know, I know there's tons of priests who, uh, say, you know, it was all I ever thought about or is all I ever imagined for myself. And that's just such a foreign thing for me because it wasn't something that I remember seriously considering. So where did you go to college? So I went off to Sterling college my first year. And that was basically because we had, uh, some recruiters come to a football game, um, when I was a senior and they, they actually, I mean, I talked to the, one of the assistant coaches and stuff, and he was recruiting some of the guys from Abilene. And so there was actually three or four guys from the high school that I went to that ended up going to Sterling that next year um, on the football team. And so that kind of was an influence. They offered the best sort of financial assistance type of thing. And so I went there really not thinking about anything besides they were offering the, me the best basically pass, package to play football, which really – was only there because they offered it. I don't know that I, I always dreamed that I was going to go and play college football. Um, and that was probably the only way that I was going to play college football was at the very bottom level of what college football is. Uh, but even there, so I went to Sterling College, and even there, I uh, and that's a Presbyterian school. I don't know if people are familiar with Sterling. It's between the Hutch and McPherson. But um, uh went there and... So I played football and realized in pretty quickly that even at that level of football in college, like they want it to be your entire life. And as much as I enjoyed playing football, it was uh, I not too long into the season realized that I, I don't know that college athletics was necessarily for me just because it's a it's a devotion in many ways. You have to you know, you have to commit yourself in your time and every almost waking moment. And that was. Yeah, so that was tough even at that level. So I can't even imagine what like NCAA Division One guys are going through in terms of that. So. What position did you play? So I was a I was outside linebacker and I was fullback on offense, which I'm kind of tall for the traditional fullback. But that was what they recruited me for was fullback. And so there was a senior fullback um, ahead of me who had put in his time and had been there four years. And so I didn't get a lot of playing time on offense that that uh, year I did play some special teams and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think it just quickly became awareness that it wasn't something that I was going to continue, uh, for, for my college career. And in the midst of that, so the faith question started to become part of the, the question at that time. Um, so I was in the midst of my football season and I was meeting a bunch of football players who, yeah, there was definitely the football players who were not you know, who were there to play football and were interested in partying and, and that element. And so there was a draw to that. And then on the other side, there were ones who were, who were walking the walk in terms of their faith life. Uh, it was Presbyterian affiliated school, but the, I would say the majority of Christians on the campus were non-denominational, um, evangelical. And so I started to build relationships with those guys and they would start to, they found out that I was Catholic and I had started to get all kinds of questions in that first year. Uh, and that, that had a huge impact on me because I didn't have a lot of answers. I realized I just had taken for granted so many things about my faith and stuff that I had never heard questioned before. 
I was starting to hear questioned and that really kind of rattled, rattled me. Uh, that's, that that's interesting. I've always wondered kind of how there are Christian colleges, but I just assumed that they were colleges that were maybe established Christian, but I didn't know how strong the the people's faith was there, or if it was even important. Or uh, and so that that's interesting to hear that there are guys there that are um, challenging each other and yeah. and kind of raising each other to a higher level. So uh, yeah, cool. and I'm assuming that's the case across the board. I know, especially at that level, at, at the KCAC level, which is the conference that that I was in, which includes like Sterling and Tabor and Bethany and, and, uh, some of those size schools that there, there is that community of Christians because those are Christian schools, uh, that I think that are there with positive relationships with Christ and stuff. So what was your major? Uh, I was at that time pretty much undeclared with this idea that I was possibly going to do pre-med, um, my brother, my oldest brother had become a physical therapist. I, th- I had thought about that. Um, so I was, I was looking at pre-med stuff. And so I kind of started on that path in terms of academics <laughs> and, and then realized, oh, well, if you're going to do that, you kind of have to like work at it. And, uh, in terms of pre-med and academics and stuff. And it's not that I wasn't good at academics. Like I, I had always been fairly good, um, without having to commit myself to, too much. Um, but I realized pretty quickly that, that that wasn't necessarily the path, um, that I wanted to go, that I wanted to commit to. Uh, so then I was leaning towards like education and, um, and then like in biology. And then I always thought maybe I would coach, um, but then I was also involved in music. Um, so it was, it was just really was big time up in the air that first year. And that was when I, it was in the fall of that year that I was introduced to, um, so basically during football season was introduced to a, a girl on a blind date by my sister, uh, who was from, well, down by the Wichita area. And she was going to school down there where my sister went to school. And yeah, so I, uh, was went on a blind date to homecoming, um, down there. And then she actually came up to homecoming at Sterling. And so we started dating for a few months and, um, that's, that's part of my vocation story is that, you know, she was a practicing Catholic who had gotten plugged into the Catholic community at the school she was at and was really thriving and learning and, and stuff about her faith. And I was not, in fact, I was drifting away from Catholicism and having all kinds of questions and stuff. And I still remember that first Christmas and I, I share this story with like homilies and stuff, but that she, um, I had gotten her candles and some perfume, I think, or something like that, which was a pretty sweet gift. And uh, she she got me a copy of Rome Sweet Home, which is uh, Dr. Scott Hahn's conversion story book. Um, and uh, at, at the time, I was like, <laughs> I was like, really, a Catholic book for my for Christmas, uh, which I wasn't totally interested in. But now looking back, I mean, I still have the copy of that book. Actually, I mean, this is twenty plus years ago. And, uh, that book was like the first Catholic book that I ever read. And it was a book that really had a huge impact on my 
understanding of what it means to be Catholic and answering a lot of the questions that people were asking me on that campus. Uh, so it's amazing how God worked through this young lady. And then at that same time, over that same Christmas break, after she gave me the book, she invited me on a retreat, um, which again was not something I was totally interested in at the time and didn't want to, <laughs> didn't want to do a Catholic retreat cause that seemed lame. But yet at the same time, I liked this girl and I was very interested in spending a weekend in the same space that she was going to be in. So, uh, so I did go on that retreat and that's the retreat. That's the, the part of my vocation story. I even mentioned it at mass this morning is, uh, uh, the retreat had a profound impact on me and my personal relationship with Christ and prayer and what that looks like and what it means to pray, uh, from your heart. And, and, um, so that was my first real encounter with prayer, with, other people who were fired up about being Catholic yet were normal human beings, you know, because there's always this perception of holier than thou and, you know, the judgment and all that kind of stuff. So it was, that was a really awesome experience. And I didn't even get to spend much time with my girlfriend on that weekend. Um, but it was actually at the closing mass, I was kneeling there next to my girlfriend at the closing mass. And it was during the, 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 the young priest who was leading the retreat, who was with a chaplain for the retreat who I had had lots of conversations and experiences with over the weekend, which were just really broke the mold for me. Um, it was in that final mass where he was doing his thing behind the altar with the, the bread and the wine, as we believe in that moment becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it was in that moment that the sense came over me for the first time in my life that you're supposed to do that. And I, uh, it freaked me out. Like I was not ready for that. I was not planning on that. And, uh, and I remember just like, I, I was just emotionally overwhelmed by it. I remember crying in the moment and just not knowing what the heck was going on. And, and at the same time I was making all these excuses like, no, 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 I'm in this awesome relationship with this girl. She's leading me closer to you, God. You know, uh, if you want me to do this thing, you're going to have to make it obvious kind of hit me over the head because I'm going to continue in this relationship because I like this girl. She's got a lot of characteristics that I could see in a, in a spouse and, and that kind of thing. And, and she was positive in my own faith life as well. Um, so that was the deal that I made with God is you're going to have to make it a little bit more clear. And cause I'm going to continue here in this relationship. And then three days after the retreat, she called me up and, and, uh, dumped me. So, uh, I'm going to interrupt you here real yeah, quick. Um, was the retreat, um, was there a theme to it? Was it in, was it so close if, to you? I don't know if you've heard geography? of geography tech. Uh, if you've heard of tech retreats, those are kind of a common high school Catholic retreat. Um, so this retreat was hosted in which in the Wichita diocese. Um, so it was down in Wichita. So I traveled down to Wichita for the retreat and, um, uh, which is where my sister and this girl were going to school down in Wichita. And, uh, so it was at the Spiritual Life Center there, and it's basically a tech for 18 and up. So there was young adults there. There was a little bit middle-aged adults there. I was actually the youngest man by, I don't know, 10, 10 years maybe or something like that um, at the retreat. So so there wasn't a ton of guys like my age, which in some ways was really good because if there was a lot of college guys there, there might have been a tendency to screw around and be, you know – 
be not as focused as what I was allowed to because of the fact that I was the youngest guy and all the other guys were kind of focused, I guess. So, so in some ways it was really cool to, to, but it was, yeah, it was, uh, 18 and I don't know who the oldest, but there was quite a few different age, age groups in there, but there was quite a few college girls. So my girlfriend and her community of friends at that, at the school that they were at. So that was pretty cool to encounter, but yeah, so that's where that's sort of what it was, I guess. A lot of times, I just heard this the other day, and and when I heard it, I was like, "Oh, that's so true," and it's so sad um, that this is kind of the norm. But um, a lot of times, those girlfriends turn into be the footnote to a priest's conversion. Uh-huh. Um, was that her case, or did she go? What did do you know? What she went on to be and do? She, she, she is a footnote in the sense that she, I truly think she served the purpose that God had her as a part of my life uh, for, and I honestly do not know, and I do not know where she is now, um, and I know she's married, um, has kids, uh, but I honestly don't, I haven't really spoken to her. I actually tried to reach out and kind of share the impact just because I think that's good for us to sometimes sure. share the impact that people have on us. Uh, I think it was through Facebook one time I sent a message to her. This is years and years ago um, and didn't hear back. So whether or not it, it went through or whatever uh, is sure. interesting to know. But uh, so it's interesting. Yeah, that that was the, the year and a half, two years that I interacted with her and I think she served that purpose of kind of redirecting or, or, or just directing me to those two significant moments, which was reading that book and then, and then that retreat. So, so how long from that retreat to entering seminary? So this is where it's a <laughs> interesting in my mind, cause some people, uh, cause I transferred. So I transferred that first year cause I knew I wasn't in an environment that was going to support my faith. And I was starting to get interested. So that summer, that summer, I started teaching a program called Totus Tuus, which is basically like a vacation Bible school uh, where college students go around to different parishes and teach catechism, vacation Bible schools to, to Catholic students. So I did that that first summer after my freshman year of college, after having had that retreat experience, after my girlfriend had broken up with me. Um, and in the midst of that, I was transferring actually down to Wichita to the school, which is funny because this is where, okay, you're a stalker because in my story, I actually went to the school where my previous girlfriend was that broke up with me. So I went to school there the following year. And then there's another dating relationship in there before I went to seminary. And this was a girl that went to Benedictine College. And I dated her in my second year when I was in Wichita. And she went to school at Benedictine and the third, and we broke up. Another, third. another Christian school for those who don't know. Right. Benedictine College. Yeah, exactly. It, so it was interesting how the girls played a huge impact because this first girl led me to Wichita, to this retreat, to Newman University in Wichita and went there my second year, which gave me the opportunity for a community of Catholics that really Im- influenced me and had an impact on me. And then dated this girl from Benedictine College, which is a Catholic college. Well, so is Newman University. But um, but more Catholic, I guess, in its identity. Uh, and so dated her and got it, got kind of plugged into that community up there. And actually the next year transferred up to Benedictine college after, after we didn't, after we had broken up dating wise. Uh, so it's 
just kind of funny as I tell that story, you know, it sounds like I was the girlfriend stalker after, after the breakups happened or whatever, but I really feel like those, those girls sort of had the impact in leading me in those steps of my own, my own journey or God's will in my life. Uh, and if it wasn't for going to those places, seeing how those places were sort of the incubator for the vocational call that God was working in my, in my heart, um, that came to fruition at Benedictine actually. So, so, so yeah, so it was that first spring of my, so that was like 1997 and then 1998 or 97, 98, I was at Newman, 98, 99, I was at Benedictine. And then it was in that space in Benedictine, that Catholic school, that Catholic community where there was a bunch of guys discerning priesthood and that kind of thing. Uh, in each of those summers, I was teaching Totus Tuus, which was basically giving me the catechesis that I hadn't received for 18 years. Uh, so, and uh, Pope Saint Saint Pope John Paul II started Totus Tuus, right? Actually, it's it was based on his motto, Totus Tuus. So yeah. that was his uh, one of his papal mottos, which means totally yours. Um, and it's it's was his basically his motto is actually on the side of the of his Vatican apartment up there in in Rome but um but it was actually started by a priest in Wichita but he chose that as the name of it through Pope John Paul II uh Totus Tua so it was through the intercession of the blessed mother kind of uh that idea of transmitting the the faith and it's i mean it's grown i mean it's grown all over the place. Like it's still continuing to grow from different dioceses. At that time it was just out of Wichita and we traveled all over the place to teach. So I was in Dodge city diocese. I was in Colorado teaching. I was in Salina and Wichita. And so it's, uh, but now it's within each diocese has their own totus tuus teams and stuff like that. But yeah, so that's how that worked. So I did, I was teaching that. So I was giving me the catechesis in between each of those years that I was meeting commu- a community of people that were encouraging me in my faith and in discernment of. So it was at Benedictine that I actually went on two trips to visit seminaries, which was the first time I had ever been exposed to that. And that was huge in terms of just seeing, you know, what it is and the guys that are in seminary and that they're normal human beings, kind of like our first conversation about entering into a church or entering into a CrossFit box is that we have this perception of who a seminarian is, who a priest is and going to a seminary was an encounter with me to realize these are, these are normal guys that, you know, they're just looking for God's plan for their life. And, and, uh, they enjoy life. They enjoy sports. They enjoy, you know, joking around and having a good time. Um, and yet at the same time they're, they're seeking holiness. So that had a huge impact on me as well. What, where did you end up in seminary and what does that for the outsider do you have to finish college before you go to seminary is that included in seminary how many years is that just kind of the overview yeah. outline how's that work yeah so seminary uh you go if you go out of college so you can transfer into seminary just like you can transfer to another college and it's basically like an undergraduate college um first. So that's philosophy school. So I went to Conception Seminary. I transferred from Benedictine, my third college in three years to Conception, my fourth college in four years. Where's that at? Uh, that's in Conception, Missouri, which is a very booming metropolis of about 
40 people. No, actually, I don't even know how many, what the population of Conception Junction is or whatever, but it's basically this Benedictine monastery in the northwest corner of Missouri uh, that's basically out by itself. It's, it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful area, the rolling hills of Missouri, but it's like this, it's this monastery that just pops up out of nowhere, out in, in the middle of nowhere. And so they have a seminary out there. Um, so I went there for, for two years to finish my undergraduate. So a lot of my credits through school transferred into conception, but, uh, so it took me two years to finish the undergraduate degree there. So I got a bachelor's in liberal arts or something like that from conception and then went on to theology school, which is, um, yeah, which is basically the, uh, the grad school. Like, so you, the theology school, you get a graduate degree, uh, master's degree basically, uh, and that's typically four years. So for me, it was four years in Mundelein, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, uh, which was pretty cool. I enjoyed going up there, but at the same time, I realized very quickly that I was a small town Kansas boy because that was in the sprawling suburbs of Chicago. And uh, I don't like traffic. So, And I also like to be able to see the horizon and uh, see sunsets and stuff. And there's too many trees up there. So um, so that was a, that was a, a cool experience. So that's, for me, it was six years of seminary for the general person. If they go out of high school, which sometimes happen, a guy will go to seminary out of high school. So they'll typically do four years of undergraduate and then four years of graduate school. Um, so if a guy graduates college and then goes to seminary, it's still usually two years of, of philosophy and what's called pre-theology and then four years of theology. So, yeah, so it could be anywhere from uh, six to eight years, typically for a guy. So, when um, when you're finally ordained and um, people start calling you father, is that weird to get used to? Um, that's like becomes your first name almost. And um, was that was there some adjustment or uh, did it just fit easily? Uh, definitely adjustment. I. In fact, that was one of the deterrents, and I think it's still a deterrent. Like people, especially when it comes to seminarians, like there's this understanding or mentality, especially in our diocese in the Salina area, which Hayes area, that if a guy goes to seminary, we want to slap a collar on his neck and start calling him father, type of a thing. Like we we jump from the point of the point A of discernment to rather than to point B of discernment, we jump to point Z of discernment and say, you know, okay, this guy's becoming a priest. Um, which I don't know that that's fair or healthy for a guy to think and to be a, to have those expectations placed on them that they're going to seminary and therefore they're becoming a priest. I, I think uh, in many and ways it's wrong for society to not. Ex- I mean, to expect almost no training. Right, like, right. hey. Um, you entered this place and now you're priest. Yeah. Congratulations. And yeah. you're like, wait, I got like four more years of yeah. even trying to see if this is right or not. So I try to communicate that to guys who are actually considering it is, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of pressure placed on you when you go to seminary that you're kind of the priest boy now. Uh, and that's not necessarily fair or healthy in terms of you're just taking the serious step in discernment. Like you're actually asking the question, is this really for me? Um, Okay, go back to the question that you asked to lead me on that one. Uh, oh, right. So whether or not it was easy to kind of become father, yeah. Um, it wasn't. In fact, that's one of the the one of the homily stories that I sometimes tell as well. Is I still remember the first time, and this was before I was ordained, I guess. So it's not necessarily a priest story, 
but it was being the seminarian and the perceptions of people as being seminarian and the reality that now I was the priest boy. And so I went back to Abilene on a break from school and hung out with some of my high school friends and stuff. And I still remember going back and like entering into the room and there was a conversation going on, like somebody telling an inappropriate joke or something like that. And it kind of just trailed off. Like as soon as I walked in and it, I hated that, that idea that I was the guy that when I walked into a room caused people to be like, Oh, we need to change the music. Oh, we need to change our conversation. Oh, we can't tell this joke or that joke. Like at first I was just like, I do not want to be that guy. Um, but then at the, at the end of the day, you know, it kind of through prayer and through an understanding is like, you know, as Christians, every single one of us are supposed to be that person that causes people to think about what they're saying, what they're doing. Is it in line with who we're called to be and that kind of thing? So it took a while cause I didn't like it at all, but it took a while to come to that realization that, you know, that is part of our Christian call, uh, is, to be a representative of Christ wherever we go and that we don't put on different hats, uh, in a sense, you know, we don't, we don't become a completely different moral person depending on where we're at. Um, I think, I think sometimes the guys like the military guys see that they come back to their hometown and everybody wants to fight them or something. And they're like, (laughs) (laughs) I just left that behind. Like, I just want to have a beer with my buddies. Leave me alone. That's so true. I've listened to a number of podcasts with military guys and they're like, most of the time they're like the least, they're the, like the least violent guys as far as like, they're like, man, I've experienced that and I don't, I don't want that. Right. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the next topic is respect though, because that. That term father, um, I mean, we we use that in respect, but I also see it here at the gym. You know, we've got college kids who aren't Catholic, and they refer to you as father, and there's a level of respect there. Um, have, you, have you ever been ridicu- ridiculed? And we talked about this uh, one time at Bible study, that maybe the coastal priests, like the New York and yeah. California, yeah. you know, have they get nervous to wear their collar down the street, you right. know, and they're in a little bit more hostile environments. Yeah. I, I, my dad looked over my questions for you and, and, uh, was, I was like, Hey, do you have anything to add? And he goes, what's this coastal priest thing mean? I said, well, um, around here we see priests out to eat and we buy their dinner for them, yeah. you know? Yeah. And out there they get like spit on and yeah. like yeah. pushed around and stuff. And he goes, are you kidding me? And I'm going, yeah, I want to ask father about that. Like, uh, have you ever been in contact with any hostile? People? Yeah. I would say like 99% of the time people have been, no matter where I'm at or where I'm going, if I'm in a collar in the public arena, like 99% of the time people, either are indifferent or are positive. Um, there have been just a real small handful, not even a handful, probably just, just a few times that I've encountered something that, uh, that was, yeah, discouraging or not necessarily discouraging, but it was just kind of surprising actually. And one of those times it was actually walking into a grocery store and my clerics and, this guy, probably in his twenties, maybe thirty, uh, kind of dressed, probably a little bit, uh, a little bit, um, what's the black, a goth-ish. He uh, walked by me and he just he hissed, <laughs> he hissed at me, uh, which I never encountered somebody hissing <laughs> at me like a just a. <sighs> and I was like, oh, okay, hey, nice to meet you. 
So it was just a, a passing thing, and it was just really bizarre. Like, and that's the only time that that I've <laughs> encountered a hissing. Um, and and honestly, it's hard for me to come up with stories. That one just kind of sticks out, I guess, as, as far as hissing. But as far as negative, like I have stories of crazy, like positive things, like where I'm in an airport and something, and some random person comes up to me and says, you know, thank you for being a witness, you know, and thank you for your priesthood. And, and so there's like easier, it's easier to come up with a number of positive stories that I've experienced as being that, you know, that public figure. Um, and it's thankfully, and I can't imagine, yeah, if it was a daily challenge to be in the public arena, that would be tough. And I know, yeah, on the East and West coasts and depending on the environments, it's uh, sometimes more challenging, but, but well, yeah. I'll just leave it there, I guess. Well, I just wanted to kind of paint the picture for, for folks out there, too. Um, for the majority of my, my life, I was sound, surrounded by Franciscan priests. So they wore a brown habit, which mm-hmm. looks like a dress with a, a white cord, um, sandals in the winter, you know, like crazy. And this is, I mean, when you look at that, you're almost like, you have to give them respect because for some reason it just looks, they look like a monk almost, you know, mm-hmm. some of them will wear their hoods when it's cold out and you're like, Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> you know? Um, and you're in black, you've got the little white collar, you know? And, um, like I said, I don't mean that that's less respectful, but it's also, it's very obvious. I mean, there's very few people who wear all black right now with a tiny little white collar. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so it's you're you're demanding some attention, um, even in our community, like we talked about. That's majority Catholic. So yeah, it's unique. It's weird. I still I still get self conscious about it. Like at times, um, you know, and sometimes I'll wear the cassock, which is like that, like you were describing the brown habit. It's uh, the black sort of full full length <laughs> dress as people call it um which was much more common in previous generations uh and i think is coming back to some degree like you're uh, bringing it back <laughs> <laughs> bringing it back uh i think some of the young guys are drawn to it just cuz just not it's interesting cuz there is a generation that has an aversion to it that sort of sees it as the church of of or and and therefore you know, it's, it's kind of in the same line as, okay, we're, are we going back to the Latin mass and are we going back to, you know, uh, priests is sitting up on a throne type of a thing, completely separated from humanity. And I don't think the young priests see it as that at all. It's seen as, uh, this is representative of, of my identity and sort of sets me apart and it's unique and it's also visible. And it is something that it has a great tradition within the Catholic Church, and I think there, I think young guys are kind of drawn to those things, which are profoundly set apart in terms of our call to holiness. Um, not in, I don't think it's in a. I, I mean, somebody could argue, and I think people do argue that it's in a look at a look at me type of mentality. But I don't think. I mean, I don't think guys are are necessarily drawn to that. I think it's that call to greatness, that call to holiness that we all have within us and that call to, to an identity. Um, and, and it's like, it's like young women today with, with religious life. And this is kind of taking it off on a different topic, but not to spend too much time on it, but young women today, if they go to religious life and it's becoming a more common thing, but they're going to religious orders where there is a very visible apostolate, whether it's teaching, nursing, um, 
something where they live in community, they live in a visible community, and they live wearing some visible representation of that commitment. And that's something that used to be the case and then went away for a while. And I think young women now are going to religious orders where they have that visible identity and visible community and visible apostolate. Um, and so I just think it's it's not, hey, let's go back to before the Second Vatican Council necessarily. Let's go to the Latin Mass everywhere. But it's just sort of some of that call and feeling of a draw to stability, to identity. So, I, I had this question saved for later, but it fits perfectly right here. Talk to me about the Matrix. Because <laughs> I know that's, that's why you became a priest, right? To also like paint the picture Nailed in people's it. head, like uh, the cassock you were talking about is, looks just like <laughs> Neo from the Matrix. He so. wears, in, the second, in the second one, he wears a cassock like the entire, the yeah. entire thing. And so that, man, I didn't want to divulge that, but that would be the number one reason that I became a priest <laughs> is so that I could dress like Neo from the matrix. But you do love the series, the trilogy, right? Yeah. 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 And why is that? What, what why do, do you, I love it? Yeah. Oh, well, I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, in some sense, you know, it's that call of the, the, the superhero in a sense of that, that individual. And, and that's something within us as human beings, we all want to do something, um, we want to do something that, that helps. We want to do something that changes. We want to be not different, but we want to be, we want to be something great. Um, and I think that's just within us as human beings. And so that's why we've always been infatuated with the story of the superhero, the person who kind of s- sacrifices certain elements of self for the sake of a, a greater cause. And so there, I think that's why, you know, Marvel and all of the superheroes movies are so kind of big right now is because there's that within us and I, I think that story is really one of the yeah it's one of those kind of stories where this guy who basically yeah is is unplugged from the craziness of the world and and uh in a sense becomes the one to to rescue the world from complete disaster and destruction and um and that and it just looks cool yeah <laughs> so there's so many cool elements to the matrix move matrix movies that were sort of at the time they were kind of breaking the the bounds of what movies could do and be and stuff like that so that was pretty cool as well and there's a ton of of parallels to the you know christ story right in, in that oh for sure yeah throughout you know and uh-huh. and if you if you know christianity yeah. watching that you're like wait a second hold on you know and yeah. i it has to be intentional yeah for yeah. sure yeah there's all kinds of elements of that and yep. from what i've heard keanu's a pretty stand-up dude oh is that right outside of i heard he's a hard worker i don't know anything else about his background life but i've, I've heard that okay this this question is is massive and like many of these other questions we could do a whole a whole podcast, a whole topic on this, but, um, as Catholics, why is mass special? Why do we refer to it as mass over church or worship service or whatever? And what happens there? What, why did, why is it such a big deal? Yeah. My mind automatically just starts asking like, okay, which direction do I want to attack this one? Cause there are so many different ways to speak about it. Um, Oh, I would say one one way, and and it's been influenced so much by the current Christian culture in which we live, which is very much 
and I'm, I'm not speaking of it necessarily negatively, um, is the, is very Protestant influenced in the sense that yes, we go to worship. Yes. We go to live out our personal relationship with Christ, but it's sort of in this context of a community of people coming to both engage and be engaged in like to be drawn into. So even the sort of the auditorium style churches that are popping up, which are, you know, um, mega, mega churches, which is becoming more and more the thing where you go in and you sit in almost this auditorium style and there's a stage with spotlights and a band. And, and then the, the guy gets up and gives a half hour to 45 minute talk. Um, that's great. And that those can be ways of encouraging and, and lifting up our faith. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the mass is not supposed to be that. It's actually worship. And we misuse that word. Um, there's a talk by Father Mike Schmitz, who I, I, I love listening to. And uh, he's got a YouTube talk. He, he spoke at a big college Catholic conference just in January. And he talks about worship. And in the tradition of, of religion, the tradition all, of all uh, religions, all religions, worship was a sacrifice, was taking a sacrifice, whether it was an animal sacrifice, sacrificing something. That's what worship was, was to, was to worship, was to offer some sacrifice. And so the mass is intimately tied into what was the old Testament sacrifice in the old Testament worship, which was kind of twofold. It was the, the synagogue, which was the entering into God's word and the temple, which was the sacrifice. And you went to the altar, you brought your, you brought your lamb, your, your animal, I mean, at Passover, the, and you held on to it. You, you actually slid its throat, I think, and then actually poured uh, the priest then poured the blood across the altar and it flowed into, and you took, and then you took the lamb with you. So you actually brought something to the sacrifice. You didn't go to the temple to be engaged. You didn't go to the temple because they had good music there. You didn't walk away from the temple saying, you know, just, did, I didn't, wasn't feeling it today. Like I just didn't get anything out of temple worship today. <laughs> it's like, because you're carrying a carcass, a bloody carcass <laughs> away from there. The one that lived with you for a little while and you got to know, you probably named it, yeah. you know? And yeah. you're like, yeah, I didn't feel anything today. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this idea that we, we go to be engaged and to, and to be fed in that sense of spiritually, emotionally, um, is such a modern, it's kind of a modern innovation. And so the mass was never intended to be that. And, and sadly it's kind of become influenced that way by our modern culture that we have to have an engaging band and we've got to have engaging, engaging words and, you know, homily that, and, and, and so I'm not speak cause I know that sometimes can come across like, Oh, if my church has good music and, and has uh, engaging homilies or whatever, then, then we're not a good Catholic church. And that's not what I'm saying, but we've been so influenced that we've lost sight of this, the focal point, which the focal point is not homily is not music. The focal point is what happens around that altar and the worship that we are to bring to that altar and allow God to transform by his sacrifice. So it's not a re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ as we often get accused of as Catholics, but it's a participation in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all time. And so it's participating in his sacrifice on the altar of sacrifice, um, encountering, encountering that sacrifice. So it's very much in, uh, intimately tied into Calvary in Jesus Christ. And then also the last supper, obviously it's a, it's a combination of both of those things. 
So anyway, that's just like a <laughs> tiny little snapshot of one element of, of mass and the significance of it. It's perfect. Um, the What's your favorite moment in mass? And maybe you have one on the tip of your tongue, but I'll give you mine while you're thinking. Um, because mine, let's see if I wrote it down here. Um, Send your spirit like the dew fall. Make this into the body blood of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I think you did it. You were the first to do it at, at uh, St. Nick's, but they ring the bells just barely there. Uh, at that moment of, right. of the hands over the gifts. Right. Yeah, yeah. So in an hour, we have like five seconds of beauty. Like It's my favorite part of Mass. Yeah. And uh, there's the auditory of the bells. And, you know, when the bells are missing, I'm like, hey. There's something there. <laughs> I you <know>? mean, too. <laughs> Did everybody else miss? They, this, this is it. It throws know? me off a second. Anyway. Like, even, obviously, today, like at Immaculate Heart, I had the Holy Family Catholic uh, Mass for the grade school kids, and obviously, so they don't ring the bells at the at the point where the priest puts his hands out over the gifts. Uh, and yeah, obviously, it's done differently different places. But I, I always get to that point, and I'm like, oh, I got to keep going, like because they don't do it. They don't do that here. Uh, so without being distracted or whatever, but yeah, that, that's a pretty cool moment. That's actually called the epiclesis, which is just a fancy Greek word, uh, for basically the, the, the spirit coming down upon the offerings that are brought to the altar. So, um, for me, I'll say something else about that while you're thinking. Yeah. Um, I just, I love the, the thought of dewfall because it doesn't fall really. It like forms. forms. It's like it's there already, and you don't know where it came from. Uh, I don't know. I've thought about this a lot, but That's just cool. do fall. You don't. I, I would even assume if you stayed up all night and the sun came up and you saw the grass, you didn't see the dew fall from sky. The sky is just showed up. That is interesting. I've never considered that, and that, that's that's actually a really cool image in terms of a spiritual idea and understanding of how God is already here and is in everything and forms in unique ways that we are oftentimes unaware of. And it's fairly new, right? Like that. Yeah, right. That words, word, right? The dofall was at was a, a change of the translation, or the translation was was I think more correctly uh, uh, translated, basically, to the original. Um, words that were originally translated in Latin. So we kind of, we didn't go back to the Latin, but we went back to the Latin for the English, the English translation. So a lot of what we say now in the Catholic mass is much more true to a literal translation of the original, the, I don't say the original, but the, the last thousand years basically of, of the mass. So getting back to the basics, um, need to take a break. Give me a high sign. Uh, I'm okay right now. All right. Yeah. Um, so I would say for me, it's got to be, I mean, there's so many things that I could point to. I mean, it, it's not really groundbreaking probably for me to say that it's the words of institution, um, which are when the priest is, is leaning over and actually says the priest bows with the bread and with the chalice in his hands and utters the words of Jesus at the last supper and then elevates the elements for people to see. Um, it, it's hard to, I mean, there's so many obviously elements of the mass that are powerful and profound, but as a priest, it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard to beat that. And it's so easy to, I mean, I say, so yeah, I've already, well, I guess I just had one mass today. Yesterday I had two masses. We have, you know, at least one mass a day, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four. 
And so as with any human being, it can become like so familiar to us and it's so easy to forget and to not think about, you know, what you're saying and what you're actually doing and the profound, the profound way that God is using me as an instrument. Um, it's just like, yeah, it's easy to take that for granted or forget about it. And so as I, as I pause to think about it, I guess it's hard to say of any moment is more profound to me than that, I guess. We're going back to a little bit of CrossFit uh, terminology and things, but um, people are are intimidated by um, what we do in a CrossFit gym, and we're recording this uh, in the upstairs at my CrossFit gym, so it's easy to talk about it without kind of giving some context. But if uh, if you showed up to your first day of CrossFit and we were doing clean and jerks like we did yesterday, and we just said, you know, go. Uh, and you you didn't even know what a clean and jerk was or or anything, and we didn't break it down for you. Um, not only would you never want to come back, but you could hurt yourself and things like that. And I think um, I think the church does this a lot. They mm-hmm. they expect certain things, but they don't teach the technique of it. And there's something that you said one time, and um, I was like, hey, I need to ask him about that because the point in mass when you say, uh, you say, lift up your hearts yeah. and we say, we lift them up to the Lord. Uh-huh. And you're like, really? Are you? And I'm like, <laughs> hold on. I have a question. How do I lift my hearts up? Like, yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering how, how we at, at, the, at the church, um, and as lay people can help teach technique better. Yeah. Yeah. The how, the nitty gritty. Uh, well, that that's interesting that you bring up that as the example of, of technique, uh, Cause it's not probably one of the most stereotypical, like sort of technique aspects of the mass. Like when you talk to the general, you know, the general Protestant who comes into a Catholic mass, I would think it's more the, the stand up, sit down, the kneel, the making the sign of the cross, responding at the appropriate times with the appropriate words that all Catholics seem to have memorized. Um, but that particular moment, yeah. Like, what does that mean to actually lift up your hearts to the Lord? I think more more than anything, it's more or less saying, "Hey, hey, get ready." Basically, it's uh, we lift lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, because this is the this is the moment actually right before that. That is the preface leading into the holy holy, which is immediately after the holy holy, we fall on our knees in preparation for the the words of institution, which I was just describing. So, uh, yeah, we don't talk about that. Um, I don't know how I, I like, and I try to, and sometimes I get away from it is in preaching or in Sunday mass to take little things from the mass and actually talk about them on a semi-regular basis. Because yeah, even as cradle Catholics, we have to review, we have to be reminded. And and that's one of the cool things about CrossFit is even if you're a, you know, a, a veteran of CrossFit, you still go through the, 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 the introductory, procession pro- progression of a movement every time you're there at the gym it's not like oh i've already done this so i'm just going to go do my thing while you guys prepare and do technique it's like technique is something that's something that you do no matter what what level you're at basically and uh yeah we i think we need that as well more frequently and i don't know how to best facilitate that um as catholics and i, I mean i've done t- like every year i do a teaching mass where I just kind of go through the parts and actually describe them and talk about them. Um, but you know, you only reach however many people show up to that, uh, 
which is not nearly as many as we get on the weekend. So I do, I do want, and I will, and I have done series like in my homilies where I just talk about the mass and kind of break it up. And I'll probably, I mean, I'll continue to do that, but probably should be an annual thing. I've taken like four weeks or something and talking about the different parts and kind of reviewing technique in a sense. That's a perfect segue though. Uh, you're an you're an okay homilist. <laughs> um, I don't want you to get too big of a head, right. but uh, I I would think that this is probably one of the mo- more scary um, oh. parts, keeping people away from the priesthood and or like really I gotta come up with that. And uh, like you said before, that's a lot of what people are coming for. That's mm-hmm. not what they should be coming for, right. but that's what keeps people coming and right. keeps them interested and stuff like that. So do you practice? Do you have bullet points? Do you have a, an overarching, I don't want all your secrets, I guess, but uh, <laughs> you, you said you just copy father Schmitz from a year that. ago yeah, so that people don't exactly. remember what he said. Exactly. But, uh, I have to, I listened to his homily from three years ago because we have a three year cycle of readings and three years ago is always what the readings were I mean, this weekend or whatever. You were on fire this morning. I mean, you killed it. So <laughs> I was like, uh, these poor kids are getting, <laughs> getting <laughs> Jesus punched for sure. Yeah. So, uh, I, that, that it's interesting that you bring that up as being one of the most, one of the scariest parts that would deter somebody because it was exactly that for me. Like, when I was, I mean, people are so surprised when I tell them like in high school, I was extremely shy. Um, in fact, I still, you know, I still am very much introverted. Uh, even though you kind of have to get used to just being a public figure and being in the presence of people and that kind of thing. But I'm actually, I lean towards introvert, which means, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to make a phone call and talk to somebody. I want to just like sit in my zone and shut down basically. Um, and so the idea, even just in high school, getting up and giving a speech, pff, that freaked me out. Like I, that was not, that was not something. So I remember just going through seminary and I would see different priests that, that I liked to listen to. Uh, Bishop Robert Barron has always been one. I actually was blessed to go to Mundelein Seminary when he was the te- he was a teacher there. And so we would hear him on a weekly basis or semi-weekly uh, give a homily. And he would come out in front of the altar and he would preach without no, without notes. And I was just like, there's no way, no way I will ever be able to do that. Uh, and, and just, it just wasn't in the cards. I was like, okay, I'll be surprised if I'm ever able to give a homily without the text and just reading the text. Like, I'm pretty sure that's going to be me. Like, that's how I'm going to have to do it. And the reality is that's how I started. So I always had, I had the, the homily, the entire homily. I stayed behind the, the ambo, the podium and more or less followed the text. Then you move where you get more comfortable with that and you start to look away from the text more frequently. Then you move away from text completely and start having bullet points on a piece of paper. Then I had a note card and it was bullet points on a note card. Then I took the note card out in front of the altar for the first time. Like, and that was like, so it was this progression of little by little, and basically then uh, eventually one point the bullet points were in my head and I didn't have the note card and I, and I was out in front of the altar. And, um, so it's interesting because I never envisioned myself. I didn't know whether I was going to be a good homilist or a bad homilist. And, uh, and so I never envisioned myself preaching out in front of the altar and especially not preaching out in front of the altar without like notes or the text in my hand. Uh, so, um, yeah. 
it's I, I truly think the Holy Spirit is a part of it for big big time because there's there's so many times where I'm speaking in a homily and I just have I have a sense of what I'm going to say and then at the end of it I'm like where did that come from <laughs> like what in the world what I didn't plan on that that wasn't part of the part of the plan but I truly think that's one of the blessings of doing it the way that I do it without the text is what I found is when I have the text obviously the spirit is involved, hopefully, in writing the text. But when I don't have the text, there's a freedom to sort of allow certain things to influence maybe what I say. And I truly think the Holy Spirit is a part of that. Like when I when I'm not bound to the text, that there's certain things that I'll say. And even at different masses on a on the same weekend, like my mass, my homily at the five o'clock mass. Sit, Sadly, is probably the shakiest of all of the homilies that I give because it's the first time I'm giving it. My bullet points are there, but they're not. It, does, it typically doesn't flow quite as well as, like, say, the eleven o'clock mass on Sunday morning, which is the fourth the fourth time I'm giving a homily. And sometimes the difference between the five o'clock mass and the eleven o'clock mass in terms of just content and stories and examples and stuff is like big time different, uh, which is interesting because I feel like certain nuances and stuff come to me as I'm, as I'm giving the homily. Um, so anyway, cool. Have you seen the, um, show comedians in cars getting coffee? I've seen an episode or two of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to, it's not, is that Jerry Seinfeld? Yeah. So yeah. Jerry Seinfeld, okay. he's a car collector. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously one of the greatest comedians of all time. Yeah. And he calls up other comedians picks them up in a vintage car that he's like That's picked right. up to That's right. like fit their personality. I think I saw the Brian Regan episode actually of comedian. comedian I don't know where I came up with this. I must've been watching it, but I was like, Hey, you know, it's a freakish talent to get up in front of thousands of people and like entertain them as a comedian. Mm. It's a whole nother level to teach them or guide them in the spiritual life. Mm. Is that heavy on you? <laughs> <laughs> Cause you're, it, I mean, it wasn't until you until you put it into those words, and now I'm uh, overwhelmed. No, uh, I just know. Interestingly, I preached the way that I know that I needed to hear it uh, when I was sitting in the pew. Like, so I, you know, at, for most of my life, I was disinterested in <laughs> in actually engaging myself in the process of seeking holiness. So for the first 20 years or whatever you want to call it, you know, if I, I would be sitting in the pew and if I wasn't engaged, then, then I was zoned, you know, I would be off somewhere else. And so I know the homilists and the homilies that sort of caught my attention and then kind of kept my attention. And so I suppose I'm preaching and most times I'm preaching to myself in a sense. Uh, I know that I have to sort of catch my attention with something typically that if I just start by saying, well, Jesus in the gospel today said such and such. And that if you start there, most times you're going to lose half your audience like immediately. And then I also know that like part, part way through, you may have lost a lot of people. So I kind of got to do some, <laughs> do something in the middle or part way through to kind of re-engage people. And I don't necessarily intentionally think about the when and the how that's going to happen, but sometimes it just kind of pops into my mind as I'm going along. So it's interesting how that works, but so, uh, you're pretty much pretty multi-talented. Um, you give me goosebumps. Sometimes you, uh, bring tears to my eyes when you're singing, unless you're singing at the gym. <laughs> Cause it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you make Play-Doh dinosaurs for my kids and ar- <laughs> argue with my three-year-old ad nauseum <laughs> and, 
my wife's like, um, who's the three-year-old in this conversation? <laughs> I think that's uh, why, I, why I get along with kids so well is because I'm not mature, <laughs> basically. Kid yourself. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, where did all these talents come from? Uh, that's a great question. God, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> no, uh, it, it is interesting. I don't know. I, uh, that's one of the, that's one of the things again I love about the priesthood is there's just so much room for so many different different personalities and different priests. I mean, obviously, some people have a connection to some priests that I'm just like, huh, I don't I don't understand that. I don't necessarily see that. And then some other have other connections to other priests, and just to seeing the different ways that um, God has blessed us. I I it's interesting because some people are talented in one area and they're just like phenomenally talented. For whatever reason, throughout my life, I've just always been interested in like everything, and I've been sort of me- mediocre to g- decent at uh, like a lot of different stuff, um, as opposed to really being focused and really good at one thing. Um, so I don't know why and how that is. I mean, I, I had really awesome parents. I have really awesome parents. Um, I think my dad is very, very much. I mean, he's the musical more so and the athletic. More so. I don't mean to talk bad about my mom, but she's less that, but more more the personality. Um, so I think it's a combination of, of both of those things, uh, or, or both of those people, obviously, in terms of how I've sort of been rounded, I guess, in a sense. So so uh, this this one comes from, uh, do you know who Mark Hart is? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So for people who don't know, he runs Life Teen. Um, very uh, big in. In fact, he has a podcast every week that he talks about the Sunday scriptures. Okay, and don't start listening to it because uh, <laughs> you'll get some of my ideas for my homilies. Uh, he has what, like six kids? I think six or eight I kids. Think so, and yeah, I don't know. He's pretty awesome. Uh, he's on the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. So Do you listen to the Catholic guy? I canceled my Sirius XM uh, like the first of the year or so, but yeah. yeah, I used to. This and this came from him, and he said uh, he was on a plane one time. That had some problems, and he said it was funny to watch how quickly everybody on the plane became Catholic mm. and how quickly their sign of the cross started coming. He said, you know, on the tarmac, had I taken a poll how many Catholics there were on, he goes, I might have seen two hands go up, you know, he said. Uh-huh. But uh, in that moment, um, there's very quick conversion rate. So uh, if if you were in life-death scenario or something like that, what do you think would be the first prayer on your tongue oh my god i'm heartily sorry for having offended the the act of contrition uh yeah uh in that type of scenario that is an interesting question that's pretty cool um yeah it's uh sort of a recommittal of myself to to christ and and hopefully uh and I trust, I mean, uh, hopefully in that moment I would be in the state where I'm certainly trusting of his mercy and that, that, uh, I have given myself in relationship to him that I've given myself in terms of living out that relationship by my life. And, uh, so, but, but yeah, immediately I think I would probably be praying those words of contrition, um, and, and come Holy Spirit, like. I like that prayer a lot. I use that one most frequently. So, as as a priest, you took vows. 
What Prom- you- actually promises, which may sound like a new, may sound like no, sem- sem- semantics, but uh, I love the details. There's a difference between vows and promises. So vows, a religious order, priest or nun or brother takes, which is uh, chastity, poverty, and obedience are the traditional three. Uh, whereas a priest makes promises for obedience, uh, for chastity, um, and like prayer, like praying the liturgy of the hours. And so there's different promises that a priest makes. And so technically not labeled as vows, although it's still this, I mean, it's in a sense, the same level of commitment, but a lot of times people think immediately that a diocesan priest, which is what I am, um, is bound to chastity, poverty, and obedience. Um, but the, the Catholic diocesan priest doesn't do the <laughs> the poverty in the sense that we live on our own and kind of have to be self-supportive and have to have a car and have to be able to get around the diocese and have to, you know, so there's elements of world of the world that we have to be a part of, which is also, <laughs> sorry, I'm taking your question and running no, away with it. It's but, perfect. Uh, but, um, it's also the reason why there's not very many diocesan priests that are saints. Um, because, I remember Bishop Robert Barron in, in seminary saying the, the diocesan priest is like the border walker, whereas the religious can be totally immersed in God. Humanity at times can be totally immersed in the world. The diocesan priest has to walk the boundary between the worldliness and the godliness in a sense. And, and, the, and it's not an easy thing to do. And we so, can easily get, we can easily fall into the worldliness or, or be disconnected from the worldliness too heady and, and, and walking in with God. And I mean, it didn't help as a diocesan priest for me to spend six hours a day in the church praying necessarily in the sense that I'm not out doing the ministry that I'm called to as a diocesan priest. So anyway, I don't have any so, idea if that's where you were going at all, but yeah, that was... you and you and Johnny Cash are wearing black and walking the line. That's right. right? That's right. So, I actually never thought about that, that uh, song, but yeah. But the, the backup to that question is to, you know, can you have investments, business interests, stuff like that? Um, you don't. You don't have a lot of bills, right? right. I mean, right. you the church provides you a house. You don't mm-hmm. have a mortgage to worry about. You don't have a car payment. Um, maybe I do you have do. a car. I do have a car payment. Okay. I do not have a mortgage, um, so the the church pays for that and utilities and all of that stuff. But I do have a car payment, cell phone. Um, so that kind of stuff, but yeah, I don't have a lot of bills. Uh, I don't have dependents obviously, which is a huge thing. Um, so yeah. Can you have like investments or oh. can yeah, you do so, your own so you retirement? Can. I think it's kind of like we do our own retirement. Um, so we are supposed to be mindful of that. And most priests are supposed to have an IRA. Um, and so have a retirement fund started, but it's not a requirement per se. Um, but it's sort of expected, Um, so I do have that we can, yeah, we can invest. I think as with many things, it's, it's all things in moderation for the most part. Like when it comes to finances, I can technically have investments. I can play the stock market as long as it's not something that's consuming me. Yeah. As long as you're not gambling out all hours of the night, you know? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, this one, (laughs) I don't know. I was excited to ask this because uh, you're really competitive. Um, and you, I, must, you must be thinking of somebody else. <laughs> I know that from the gym, playing spike ball, all sorts of different things. And 
I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not really competitive. It's one of the faults in my character that I wish that I could change. And <laughs> I, I think I would be better in business and in life if, if I was a little more competitive. Um, but in our business of selling insurance, it's very, I mean, I'm self-employed. I, if I don't go to work next week, I make zero money. I, yeah. my house is going to get repossessed, et cetera, et cetera. That's a, that's a load on my chest, but that is very motivating too. But it's also motivating in a competitive way because I want to do better than my buddy, or I want to beat my dad at, mm-hmm. at his game that he's been doing for 30 years. Um, I know your character about being competitive you chose a service role or is there opportunities in the priesthood to be competitive or are you competing at the best game ever of my soul's going to be more holy than everybody else's? (laughs) That is an interesting question. And I have not thought about how does my competitive nature play itself out in terms of my vocational call? Um, and, or does it? And, uh, I don't know that I, I don't find myself consumed with competition in the realm of, in the realm of my job or holiness. I mean, I suppose there's some level of self selfishness that gets into like brother priests and like how ministry is going and how, as with anybody, you know, you can get, you can get into the worldliness of, um, or people listening to my homilies or I'm posting stuff on Facebook or doing this podcast or that thing. And are people listening and how do I, <laughs> how do I compare to my brother priest in the diocese? I know it was sort of a joking thing that father Gail Hammerschmidt, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, and I, and I had brought up, um, we were, we were on the, we were on the path to, <laughs> to 5,000 friends on Facebook. And so it became a thing. It was like, who was going to get to 5,000 friends first. And so I, uh, I think I even mentioned it in a homily one weekend or something. <laughs> and he smoked me cause he's at, he's at St. Isidore's and he's got a huge, uh, well, not, not that that's the total reason, but, but it's one of those things. Yeah. There's, there's certain elements where we can kind of get into a, a little bit of a, how are people receiving, you know, what I'm trying to do and that kind of thing. But on a regular basis, I don't necessarily see too often on a daily basis within the Hayes community that, that competitive competitiveness plays itself out. And I think that's probably why I love coming to CrossFit and why I love like having other outlets because it's a way for me to kind of release some of that competitiveness. Cause it doesn't have maybe as much of an opportunity in terms of ministry life. Uh, but yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever considered how does that play itself out in ministry. But you mentioned uh, liturgy of the hours earlier. What is that? Yeah, so uh, that is basically praying the psalms. So all priests and religious, um, well, specifically diocesan priests, promise that they will pray the liturgy of the hours, which is basically a, a, the, what's called the psalmody, which is Christian prayer, which is a compilation of of all 150 psalms over a period of four weeks compiled into these books that a priest prays or uses his phone to pray off of, uh, which I sometimes do. But, uh, so, so yeah, there, there is, um, there is that, the, that commitment that as a priest, so I'm committed to five different times a day or five, what's called five hours of the day 
there's an office of readings, which compiles a scriptural reading and a, and a saint's reading. And then there's morning prayer, there's daytime prayer, there's evening prayer, there's night prayer. So I pray the Psalms throughout the day. And that's something that I promise to do as priest that I'm constantly uh, in prayer for my community, for my, for my vocation, but also for my community and my, in a sense, my spiritual children, my parish. So, yeah. How closely did your personal beliefs line up with the church? And was there anything that you struggled with in saying like, okay, um, I have to conform myself to this thing um, because I, I'm going to be a priest. I got to kind of walk the walk yeah. as well as talk the talk. Um, or was it an easy, easy thing to do? It's so weird. Um, I, I guess, I mean, looking back, obviously I grew up in a fairly conservative home in terms of that, whatever traditionally that word means in the sense of, uh, politically conservative. Although I do remember my parents being Democrats growing up, which was a different, which was a different thing back then. Um, <laughs> because yeah, Democrat was very different than it is today, but, uh, but I do, yeah, I do think I was pretty, pretty conservative home, but I honestly didn't know the difference between, you know, traditional and following, you know, the church's teachings and being against the church's teachings. In fact, I didn't know the moral teaching of the church until I got into college and I was exposed to it through some really solid priests. And I think, yeah, they probably had a big hand in forming my understanding of the moral law. And, and I mean, I still remember having a conversation about contraceptives in college, in a college Bible study, my first year of college, I didn't, not on a, not only did I not really know what they were, I didn't know anything about, I mean, I had certain ideas as to what they were, but I had no idea what, that there was a teaching about it, that there was a moral connection to how we are created and what, you know, sex is for and all of those different pieces of that puzzle at that time in my life. So yeah, that, that forming I think came much later for me than maybe most people. I don't know. Um, but anyways, because that came in college while I was in serious discernment, I don't know that there was ever a time where I was like, yeah, I, I don't agree with this. I'm gonna have to research it more. Uh, cause it was sort of in the learning that I was being exposed to the teaching of the church and, and it all, as it was presented to me, just kind of clicked and made sense and what I was reading. And so I've always been, not always been ever since then kind of as I've continued to learn, as I've continued to study um, it's amazing how the teaching and the truth of the church and the church's moral law and specifically said the sexual ethic, which is obviously extreme, probably the most unpopular thing in Catholicism today in terms of our culture um, and the, and the most people that sort of call themselves Catholic, but don't follow that particular teaching of the church that that, just makes sense in terms of who we are as human beings. And Pope John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II, did as, as good of a thing as anybody in giving us the theology of the body to sort of put that into a context and to make it make sense because he speaks to the human heart and every common human heart experience that we have. So anyway, without going into that in great detail, I don't know that there was any any particular teaching that I really had to wrestle with. The old, I mean, the biggest obstacle for priesthood was celibacy, but it wasn't necessarily because I disagreed with the idea that priests had to be celibate. It was just, I always imagined I would be married and so I would, that I would have a family. So it wasn't necessarily a disagreement with the discipline. It was just 
I don't know if I want to, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. Um, so I think that's the way most, as I've come to understand the church's teachings, it just made sense. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question. Or, Perfect. But. Um, adoration, uh, again, another thing that Pope St. John Paul II has made more available and the adoration chapels are popping up all over, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, are there, do you do it? Are there certain rules to follow? How often should one do this? And is there a good, is there anything not to do at adoration? Um, That's a loaded question. <laughs> I don't think you should smoke in adoration. <laughs> is that what you're getting at? Um, uh I would say um, I'm along that line as far as individuals going into an adoration chapel. And if you have an hour, if you are in there with someone else, I don't think you should ever do anything that would distract the other person. So basically whether it's praying out loud, whether it's, I even think it can be distracting for somebody to, cause there are people like college students who are just like fired up and they'll go into an adoration chapel and they'll actually lie like prostrate on the floor. And I, I don't know. I don't know that that's something that, I necessarily encourage in a setting like a a 24 hour adoration chapel, because that's, um, I think that's a personal devotion that can kind of be distracting for somebody who's behind you and wondering if you passed out or like what's going on just because it's not a normal gesture. So, uh, besides that, I don't know that there's anything that's out of bounds in terms of adoration. Yeah. Yeah. We should do things that are drawing us into the reality of what's up there on the altar um, so some people have different differing opinions about which devotional type things you can or should do because they think some of them would distract you from the Eucharist exposed. So some people would say like, you shouldn't pray the rosary because it's a, a Marian prayer and Jesus is up there in the Eucharist, which I disagree with personally, because it's the, the prayer is directed towards Christ, obviously through the intercession of, of Mary. And it's a meditation upon his life and upon, you know, the, the mysteries. Um, so to me, that makes sense. I also think like the stations of the cross, even though they typically are around the church, I typically think that it's a meditation upon the passion of Christ and that's who is upon the altar. And even though we're looking at the station, it's like saying, Oh, we're distracted from the Eucharist. That would be like saying, well, don't look at a book in your hand because you're taking your eyes off of Jesus. I think that's not accurate either. I think we should use whatever we need to, to, to deepen us into that prayer time, into that relationship time. Um, I also love it just because it's like, it's the most sort of black and white thing that we do as Catholics that sets us apart. And I don't mean that in a, we're better, we're worse, uh, sets us apart in the sense that we're either crazy and totally idolatrous or this is actually legit. Okay, so let's break this down. Okay. So that just in case somebody turned it on and heard <laughs> that one sentence. So I'm going to paint the picture of the adoration chapel that we have here at Immaculate Heart of Mary is a tiny room and it would hold if it was packed full maybe 10 people. Uh-huh. And the the Eucharist is exposed in a beautiful monstrance. And we're talking about a... Um, a monstrance basically is just like a, a golden vessel that has a circular thing at the middle to hold the consecrated host, in case people don't know what a monstrance is. about five inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. And we are not um, adoring that 
gold monstrance. We're adoring Jesus fully present in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And we're doing that through prayer, through silent meditation, Mm -hmm. through the stations of the cross, Mm -hmm. reading your Bible, Mm -hmm. just being in presence there. And it happens 24 hours a day, pretty much 365 as long as the weather doesn't permit something from happening but mm-hmm. i mean this this amazes me it, that means somebody's there at 2 a.m mm-hmm. yeah. somebody's there at midnight mm-hmm. i mean i usually don't i'm not there at that time but right <laughs> and so i think i was i was in my first two years of priesthood in salina and i realized that's not a good idea for my for my life in terms of ministry and all that kind of stuff so you fall asleep in there yeah yeah so but yeah, so that's the setting, and if we've got the teaching wrong and Jesus did not give us his flesh in terms of giving us the bread, which he says, this is my body, this is my blood, if he didn't intend the Eucharist that is um, transubstantiated, as the word we use as Catholics in the Mass, if it's not changed into his body, blood, soul, and divinity— then what we're doing in that room is not only kind of like, oh, that's kind of messed up or that's kind of the Catholics got it, you know, they're a little bit wrong. It's it's like worshiping a golden calf type wrong. Like it's completely idolatrous. We're kneeling and worshiping a piece of bread. That's definitely not anything more than just a piece of bread. Um, so either that's the case and we're just kind of confused, but not just a little bit confused. And we're, you know, we're right about a lot of things or something. And then that one, we just kind of got wrong. Like that's, that's the central source and summit. I mean, we call the Eucharist, the source and summit of our faith. That's sort of the foundational, most central piece to our faith. And it's the thing that sets us apart many from many Protestant denominations. So if we got that wrong, we're not just wrong. We're whacked out you know, not Christian, not, not following, uh, Jesus as he intended to be followed. But if that is, as he describes in John chapter six, his flesh for the life of the world, uh, then that's, that is an, that's the most miraculous. And that's what I was talking about in my homily this morning is like the biggest miracle that we can encounter in this world is what happens at the altar at mass and what's, constantly 24 hours a day exposed in that little room at at St. Mary's and it's the closest we can get to Jesus. And it's the, the most profound opportunity for prayer with him. Um, if, if we're right about that. So that's something that I love it because you have to wrestle with that. You can't just say, Oh, it's not a, you know, something I don't, don't agree with. I mean, if you don't agree with that and you think Jesus, you can't just say, Oh, Catholics are good. Like I, I, Catholics are fine. Uh, it's either that's true or we're not fine. We're actually crazy. Right. Um, so it can't just be, oh, they don't have the Eucharist thing right, but they're still Christians. They're still fine. No, we're we're either idolaters or we're not, basically. Uh, so anyway. You're full of segues. This is perfect. Um, at Mass, you have crab fingers. So let me just <laughs> describe this to folks. The the index finger and the and the thumb are touching each other uh, yeah. during the consecration. And if you haven't noticed this next time you're at mass with father, you're going to go, Oh, that's what he's talking about. Uh, what's up with that? Yeah. It's cause I'm super holy. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't, that's, that's what all the, that's obviously what it is. All the saints are depicted like that, like mm-hmm. in the pictures and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So it ties into what I was just talking about. So you are right. That was an interesting segue. Um, is if we believe that this is no longer bread, that this is no longer wine, that it truly is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ really and truly present substantially, which I don't want to get into that distinction of substance and accidents and all that. But if it is, then that means we cannot treat it like a piece of bread. We can't touch it like a piece of bread. We shouldn't um, approach it as, as a piece of bread. It is Jesus Christ and demands certain elements of reverence uh, as part of the reason why I'm drawn into, you know, fancy look investments and fancy chalices and ciborium and that kind of stuff, because I can validly celebrate mass with a paper plate and a Dixie cup and it's a hundred percent Jesus. But as human beings, we need those elements that communicate. This is a big deal. This is different. I'm not just going to a picnic on the beach, but I'm actually encountering something set apart and different and, and extremely holy. And so that's what I think the beautiful vestments and the gold and, you know, shiny objects do for us as human beings. We're drawn in by our senses and it speaks to us, whether it consciously or subconsciously, this is a different thing. This is a big deal. This is set apart. Um, and so that little finger thing was, was done in the extraordinary form of the liturgy. Um, because those are the fingers, those are the fingers that touch the host prior to and then at, at the moment of consecration. So when we believe that transubstantiation takes place as priest, I'm, I'm using those four fingers to touch, to hold the host, to elevate the host. And if this is truly Jesus Christ, then the particles of that host are now on my fingers and I don't want to just be sprinkling them all over the place. Um, and so that's where that sort of that tradition, that understanding, that idea. So it's not so much about, Oh, look at me and I'm super holy. It's for me. It's one of the best ways that I've found that communicates to me and helps me keep in mind what the heck I'm doing and like what a big deal it is because I need those things. And and like I talked about a little bit ago is like, I've got four masses, three masses, you know, two masses. and, And it's so easy to to lose a sense of what I'm doing and how profound it is. And those types of little gestures and things for me as priest actually help to keep it focused and to remind me what it, what, what the purpose and the significance is. So that's a really long answer for why I have my fingers together. And so until I have an opportunity to purify those, which is typically after I distribute communion, after communion is over, the server comes over and pours water over my fingers into the chalice. And I have the opportunity to purify. I keep my, I keep my fingers together like that um, because they have touched the body of Christ, which well gets into the conversation about uh, how we can better do remind ourselves about you know how we how we approach God and are I, you reading my notes or what? <laughs> like, we we just talked about this in Bible study the other day about not yeah. chewing the host you yeah, know yeah. and th- this is something that before um, the Vatican II um, you weren't supposed to let the host touch your teeth and now people just throw it in their mouth chew it up get mm-hmm. back in the, the pew to check out what everybody else is wearing at mass. So, um, just something that I've been personally trying out in mass is just to, to let it dissolve and to yeah. focus on what I, I was just the, the gift I was just given. 
And this is in the same vein of obviously what we've been talking about is, uh, you know, it's part of the reason why you're going to hear a lot of the younger priests have a preferential treatment for receiving on the tongue. Um, it's in that same vein of if this is truly and completely something separate, yes, you can receive reverently in your hand. Yes. It's, you know, it's possible. You're not going to go to hell receiving in your hand. Um, but if this is something set apart, something so, so dramatic that every particle is truly and really Jesus, then we should be paying special attention if we are receiving in the hand to any extra particles that might be there. And a good way to avoid having to worry about that is actually receiving it on your tongue. And if nothing more than we don't do that anywhere else, like if you go to Sam's club and you get, and they're handing out, you know, they're handing out, uh, free samples of something they're not going to give it to you they're not going to put it in your mouth for you and so even just in a very human down-to-earth way you're going to receive it in your hand you're going to consume it throw it pop it in your mouth you're going to treat it and and if we approach the eucharist in the same exact way it just whether again whether subconsciously it's going to communicate to us that we're just getting our free sample and we're going you know we're we're headed down the headed down the road as opposed to approaching it as this encounter with God that is unique and set apart. And anyway, I don't want to go too hard on that, but uh, it's just something that you're that I, I think we were given uh, <laughs> as Amer- Americans were given the permission of receiving in the hand. Actually, the Rome gave the permission. So not not every country was given the permission. I don't know exactly when and how and why all of that came about, um, but it is a legitimate way to receive in the hand. Uh, however, I, th- I think there's so many that sort of it allows them to not really think twice about it that I think it would be interesting if people started, do- started doing that and whether it would impact the way they approach it. So I think it's just like anything else that when you change yeah. what you've always done, get yourself out of your comfort zone, right. like we talked about with CrossFit, like we talked about with anything yeah. else, um, it's, uh, it just opens your mind to the importance. Yeah. Um, I think this is the last uh, long-winded uh, question I have for you. All, the all rest should all be questions quick, are quick fired. For me. <laughs> you love Lent, right? I mean, it seems like uh, I mean we're in the middle of Lent, so um, it's easy to talk about this. But you had been talking about it for you know four to six weeks leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Are, do you get pumped for the challenge? Are you like good at suffering? I hate it. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest, I I suck. At- How's your current fast? going uh it's going well this lint has actually been good but i have had really poor lens in recent history um as far as like i have all kinds of high ideals about what it's going to look like and uh how committed i'm going to be and uh it's rarely a lint where i don't stumble with my commitments um at some point and i typically have commitments in the three different areas of prayer fasting and almsgiving so i try to subtract something. I try to add something. I try to, I try to, uh, do something material wise, um, in terms of like, whether it's give clothing away or some, some donation or something. Um, this year has been good. I have actually <laughs> drinking, a. I'm on a 20, a 28 day cleanse, which actually has fit quite well. I just started it a week ago and, and it, anyway, it, it really, 
forces me to have to look at like the when and the how and the what I'm eating, which I think is part of what fasting is about basically is having to actually acknowledge, um, that there are certain restrictions, certain things that are good and fine for us, but that it's good to, to say no to because, uh, our, our bodies can become so loud that they control us and we stop listening to what we should be listening to. And we just listen to our bodies that says, I'm hungry. I want to sleep. I want to, you know, I'm, you can get into, I'm aroused all of those different elements of what our bodies are screaming at us. Uh, and if we don't pay attention to saying no in the, the small things, then we typically can slide into not saying no in anything. So on this 28 day fast, this is the second time you've done it. Um, I did seven the first time. So this is a, you just did seven days the first it was time. A seven day thing. Oh, the okay. First time, yeah. Um, but that was before Lent, right? Do you feel like this time around is more important or easier, or um, you're having a, an easier time with it because it's Lent, or because you've done it once before, or is it just as hard as it was the first time? Uh, it's pretty similar to the first time. Pretty much the same, except for honestly, the seven day was easier because. Uh, there was an end, there was an end game in sight. Like I was always like, okay, fourth day, there's three, there's only three days left. Okay. There's only four days left. Now I'm on day eight currently. And so I've got 20 days left. It's like, okay, that's uh that's a little bit longer. Uh, so the, the, uh, final finish line is still, is still a ways out there. So it's, it makes it more t- difficult to be as dedicated, uh, in that way. So have you heard the term inner life? What's an inner life? I have not what context are you speaking I don't know. of it? I heard it on the radio the other day. I think it's just like your your inner uh, relationship with God, but I don't know. It's just like inner life. I'm going to ask Father about that one, but we can always skip. I mean, if yeah, I would say if it's in reference to spiritual, then there's obviously the spiritual life things, those things that go on within our mind and our hearts, but I, I don't know that I've necessarily heard that in that. What, uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? what context (laughs) just in general i mean it could be it could be just like general uh society or it could be like i hate when people wear hats at church or um there's my biggest pet peeve is when people put the uh the 45 pound plates on the stack upside down so you can't say you can't see the number 45 on the top of Or the whole wrong or the stack. 35, or on the wrong stack. Put the 45 on the 55 That is stack. so funny because I do actually, I do have a little thing, which is so funny because I'm so disorganized that it's ridiculous that I would have any kind of commitment to order in such a way. But for some reason, like I will go and like rearrange some of the plates so that the number is facing up. Or if it's on my bar, the, the number has to be facing out so I can see it. What if you had mismatched plates or like, I hate that. Oh, somebody I loaded up your bar and you're like, no, we I will go halfway down the stack and set the other ones aside to get the matching plate so that I don't have mismatched plates. It's so stupid. Attention to detail, yeah, which is so, again, that does so counter my my personality like if you saw my house right now you'd be like it's yeah not attention to detail and completely cluttered so have you ever been a part of or have you ever seen an exorcism Oof. uh no i've not been a part of one nor have i seen one i've only heard stories from exorcists themselves individuals who have been a part of one um and there's some pretty crazy stories out there um about things that have been witnessed uh, that I have not personally seen, um, but things that have been encountered by 
by friends, by, by brother priests, uh, in that realm. So I truly think, I obviously think it's real. Uh, I think it's an important thing. Uh, I think it's the thing that people struggle with. And I have encountered the opportunity of praying the, so there's minor prayers of exorcism that a priest can pray in like a house or over someone who is being tormented. Um, but if somebody is truly possessed or a space is truly possessed, you're really supposed to call upon the, the priest exorcist, but a priest can go to a house and pray. Like I, so I did have some people in, even in Hayes, since I've been in Hayes who were struggling, they had some really weird stories of some really weird stuff taking place in their house. And so I came over and did a, a minor prayers of exorcism and house blessing with holy water and all of that. And they expressed that it was uh, that they haven't had the problems cool. since then. So yeah, it was uh, that was one of my only really experiences with that the supernatural in the context of a blessing. But um, I'm sure that through the years you've gotten some cool gifts. What's one of the coolest gifts <laughs> that you think you've gotten? Uh, that's so. That's so. Uh, we can come back to that one. Too. No, no, it's good. It's just like okay, if I if I show if I say one of the coolest gifts, then it's going to sound like uh, I'm very worldly <laughs> and I'm not as for those people man. too, right? right. <laughs> like so, somebody gave me a a, a thirty out six scope rifle, uh, semi automatic. That's I, awesome. <laughs> so uh, uh, that was a pretty cool gift. Uh, hard to, hard to beat that one actually. Uh, I got a trigger grill. So again, these are examples of like these worldly gifts that I shouldn't be talking about. I should be talking about these, uh, medals and crucifixes and stuff <laughs> that I've received. But so those are pretty cool gifts, but I, I don't know if I should ask this question or not. Cause I think it might lead us down another, uh, I'll try, long to, I'll try to hold my conversation, but hold myself back. um, when we were talking earlier about the, the sacrifice, I'm, I wonder, uh, I've recently gotten into hunting in the last couple of years of killing a deer and, um, field dressing. And I, I wonder if the, no offense to anybody, city folk Catholic has no idea what it is to cut open the belly of a, of an animal and pull it out in the field and the smells and the blood and the everything, and then drag that thing back and throw it in the back of your pickup and stuff. So I don't know why my mind went to that, but you mentioned the rifle and I went, you know, like that's, that's something that I've recently experienced in the last couple of years. I mean, my dad hunted when I was a kid and I saw that, but like from 10 to 30 almost like I never, I didn't do it. And now I I've done it a couple of times. It's like, I don't know. That's crazy. (laughs) Anyway, that's interesting. All right. What's uh, one, I was like, where's he going to go with this? I don't know. Where's the, where's the question mark? Anything to go off on that. Um, what's one relatively inexperienced, inexpensive experience that you believe everyone should try at least once? Uh, inexpensive experience. I think one thing that I would recommend is we, we talk about keeping God at the, obviously at the center, but even just keeping God as a part of the equation when it comes to the worldly things that we are a part of. So I would say one inexpensive thing that any family can do when they're hitting the road for vacation, um, 
is finding some place, some spot along the road. It could just be a Catholic church, but there's all kinds of like shrines and uniquely Catholic places and uh, situations that, um, and, and again, non-Catholics obviously can find ways and places that they could go and visit something that would recenter or refocus us on the element that God is a part of this trip, that God is a part of this aspect of our lives. So even if we're going somewhere, you know, going to the lake or going to Disneyland or going wherever that on the way, having something or somewhere as part of the destination that we're seeking out that actually has something to do with our faith. So I, I think that would be an example of something that I think people should try to do. Uh, it's hard to do because we're not constantly, I mean, we're often not thinking of that element, but in planning a trip, it's a cool thing to, and, and those are memorable experiences for kids, like to have those opportunities as a kid growing up. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're in, we're planning a, a trip this summer and I, I kind of wanted to purposely make it over a weekend. So it forced us to leave the resort to go to mass in yeah. Mexico, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and that's a unique experience. It might be sure. scary because yeah. I hear there's some, uh, some, uh, scary stuff going on down in outside, Mexico. Outside of the resort. But, uh, I don't know. Um, do you have any quotes, sayings, mantras, anything that you keep, um, on your mind as a constant reminder day to day? Uh, I have to say come Holy Spirit is probably number one. Um, just because I'm constantly seeking inspiration, uh, which is where that word comes from. Um, the spirit as, because I'm constantly speaking, constantly giving talks, constantly saying prayers in, in public settings. So I would say that's probably, uh, of all of the prayers and mantras, that's probably number one. Um, yeah, I'll, st I'll st stick with that. I got one more question. Do you have anything else you want to add? Um, if people want to find you, they can find you on Facebook. Yeah. Anything um, else you want them to check out? Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah, Facebook would be a way to encounter and I get criticized because sometimes I post stuff on Facebook, which only can reach those who are my friends on Facebook. And so I try to share stuff with our St. Nicholas of Myra page. Um, but we've been doing a lot of fun stuff recently that, uh, We've got a podcast that we do on Saturday mornings with a couple of guys um, talking about theological topics. But then we've got one that, that uh, we just started called Summit, which is basically answering misconceptions about the Catholic Church. And it's with a couple, a couple that has recently come back from uh, a Protestant church in the area that have come back to the Catholic Church. And so addressing some of their initial questions as well as the the typical questions that even Catholics might have. So cool. What would you like for your personal legacy to be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that was a holy dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know that I think about legacy in the sense that, I mean, yeah, I, I think the more salvation of souls, I think that's, what I'd like to think that I'm trying to do on a daily basis is encounter people having an impact, whether it's in a secular way or in a spiritual way and drawing them to Jesus Christ. So I guess that would be a legacy that I would love is that people saw me as somebody that helped them on their path to Jesus Christ. So awesome. All right, let's wrap it up. Thanks. Sounds good. Thank you. Stop by one and done training.com 
That's the number one, A-N-D-D-O-N-E, training.com. There, you'll find our blog, media library, and ongoing training to help with your final expense career. Thanks. We'll see you there.